Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shen. Think about those things that are the most personal, often the most intimate and complex. What goes on inside of a marriage? Why and how people give away money? There's a reason many do it anonymously. And the degree to which business rules America. These are the elements that make up the story of Ray and Joan Crock. A story that's part Edward Albee, part business, and part even political in the sense that the personal is always political. Ray Kroc was the driving force that made McDonald's bloom all over the world. Joan Kroc became one of the most liberal and generous philanthropists of our time. An unlikely combination, an unlikely but compelling story told by my guest, Lisa Napoli. Lisa Napoli is a longtime journalist. She's written for the New York Times, MSNBC, Marketplace, and a variety of other outlets. Her first book was Radio Shangri-La, about the impact of media culture on the mysterious kingdom of Bhutan. It is my pleasure to welcome Lisa Napoli back to this program to talk about her new book, Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and the Woman Who Gave It All Away. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me it's here great, again. Great to have you here. You were originally going to write a book about Joan Crock and realized, as you said about doing that, that in order to tell that story, you really had to tell the story of this marriage, this partnership, this relationship. Talk a little bit about that. I was fascinated by Joan and, uh, you know, strong woman, the wife, you know, behind the scenes. Why did she give all this money away? And I realized after a couple of years of researching that it was hard to tell the story of Joan without telling her husband's story. And to tell the story of her husband's, it was impossible to tell that without telling the story of McDonald's. So Mm. that's why you have the book you have in your hand now that's sort of a triplet biography of all those things. As you wanted to tell Joan's story, talk a little bit about how you came to realize that you couldn't really tell it without understanding Ray, first of all, and their marriage, secondly. Right, right. That's a key ingredient that you point out so wisely. I, you know, it's a couple of different things. I basically joined a biographer's group when I started on this trail of Joan because I wanted to understand how the masters did it. I read a lot of biography and I talked to a lot of biographers. I participated in these conferences. And what I kept learning is that, you know, it's really hard to isolate one moment in someone's life or one, uh, just a person without telling the greater story. So that became clear. But really what happened was that there was little to know about Joan. There were very few records that she left. Um, I spent a lot of time sleuthing out a lot of people who were very hard to find, to identify in the first place. Even just finding a picture of the two of them together for the front of this book was difficult. And so the more I dug and the more mysterious things became, of course, as a reporter, I became more intrigued. And even though sometimes I got a little downtrodden, mostly it fueled me to keep going, to find out why. Why was she so secretive? Why was she so resistant to being chronicled when she was doing such good work and it wasn't like she was a completely unknown person. It didn't make any sense to me. So that's those those things, those variables conspired to get me to this point where I can't believe I am right now, where you actually have a book in your hand. The defining moment seems to me at least, and, and certainly there are lots of moments and lots of elements to this story, but part of the defining moment about their relationship that ultimately leads to her decisions to give away the money that she does really seems to be the way they met, the the circumstances under which they met. Yes, that's so 
so true, so smart. They met uh, because of McDonald's and because of the piano, and those two things were uniting forces for them for their lives. Now, when Ray walked into an elegant restaurant in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1957 to sell the owner of that restaurant a franchise for McDonald's, it was early, early, early on in the in the McDonald's movement, if you will. Uh, the store that that fellow opened was number 93. So that's how early we're talking about. Joan was in there playing organ, making a living as an organist, a pianist around town. She played on local television. She taught lessons to kids all over the area. And this was one of her jobs. And Ray was smitten with her proficiency on the keyboards, but also her beauty. And this fiery passion began right there, even though they were married to other people, and even though Ray was collapsing under a mountain of debt and stress that he'd gotten into in order to get to this point in his life. Um, he had a difficult relationship with his first wife. He was not sure that this McDonald's thing was going to work. In fact, lots conspired to, to make it seem like it was going to fall apart for, for years uh, because of the corporate structure. It was not, not set up well. And um, despite that, despite the, the poverty or the, the lack of money that Joan had, she wasn't desperately poor at that point, but she, she did not have a lot. Uh, despite those out side pressures and the fact that they had spouses, they still managed to connect um, and stay connected for the 12 years before they actually got married. Talk a little bit about the fact that they both had spouses at the time and how that impacted the way their relationship evolved and really the determination that Ray seemed to have about this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because we talk about divorce very cavalierly today, but, you know, some of us remember a time when that wasn't the case, where it was, you know, you would never think of going somewhere with someone who wasn't your wife or, you know, if she was just your girlfriend. That was seen as very untoward. And certainly if it was somebody outside of the marriage, that was just unthinkable. So this is a different a time of different social mores conventions. Uh, Joan was much younger. She had a young family. Ray was so smitten and so sure that Joan, who was interested in McDonald's, whereas his wife was completely dismissive of it from the very beginning, understandably, because he'd brokered them, mortgaged them to the hilt. And, uh, you know, she'd lived with years of stress with Ray financially, not knowing what was going to happen next. Along comes Joan, and Joan is intrigued by him. They share this passion for music, and Joan is a much more vivacious and lively personality than Ray's first wife, not just the least because she's younger, but because she just is. That's just how she's wired, and he he loved that about her. Um, he loved that she was so gung-ho for McDonald's, even before McDonald's was a, was a going concern. Her husband became a uh, manager and then ultimately a franchisee himself. And so she was indelibly in, involved in the creation of McDonald's from the ground. Literally, she ordered potatoes at, in Rapid City at the back of the store that uh, her husband got to build. Uh, she oversaw the construction of the stores and crewed up and was deeply involved in it. So this is something that was a through line for them. They even ate McDonald's. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, once they were able to eat anywhere they wanted, they, they did eat eat the stuff too. So uh, it was it was important and influential in every single way in their lives and in how they came together. And they re-met because of the McDonald's convention. Ray was speaking at it. Joan was attending it with her husband. 
Um, he and she stayed up serenading into the night on a piano at a private party he had, and off they went, finally, to get married. What was that part of their life like when they finally broke up, essentially, with, with their respective spouses and ultimately got married? Yeah, and it's important to say that Ray had another spouse in between because uh, Joan aborted an earlier attempt to marry him or an early offer of marriage, and uh, he married somebody else after divorcing his first wife. So it was a long passion. And I think that, uh, as is often the case with long passions, uh, once you're living in the reality, it's a different world. Uh, Of course, their worlds were completely unimaginable at that point because Ray was one of the richest men in the country. He was a celebrated CEO by the time they married. Um, It was really hard for Joan to be the silent trophy wife spouse, which is really basically what she was expected to be. Um, Everything about her life was orchestrated by people in the McDonald's fold, and she just didn't really want that. That wasn't what she was looking for. So I think it was a tough adjustment, not the least of which was because Ray had a fiery temper that was exacerbated by his alcoholism. And I don't know that Joan, I could never determine whether Joan knew or realized what his his drinking issues were before they married, but certainly after they married, it was very apparent to her. And she even filed for divorce in 1971, but decided to stay. And that says a lot. You know, it would be easy to say that she stayed because of the money. I don't think it was quite that simple. I think this was a very long passion, um, very fiery. And I, I think that they really, they really loved each other but it was difficult to live with each other. It's really a, an interesting aspect of the story in the context of this long passion and what happens to things like that, to relationships like that, when suddenly the reality of day-to-day living enters into the picture. Right, right, exactly. Day-to-day reality kills a lot of things. <laughs> but in this case, what she did, um, which most of us can't do, is she took a slice of his vast fortune and channeled her distress into something positive. And that's time and again why I came back to this story in my mind uh, when I tried to talk myself out of it. Uh, I would say, you know, this is such an incredible thing. A woman who's in a bad situation who really wants to figure it out and how she figures it out is by starting a, a basically a nonprofit to help explain alcoholism and the role it had in our society. So at a time, which is really hard to imagine, uh, but it's not very long ago, there was a time, Jeff, that people didn't just bandy about the word alcoholism and go into treatment. I mean, it was a, it was a different era. And so she started this organization called Operation Cork, Croc, spelled backwards, uh, to address these issues. And she had a high school education She had a lot of money, and she had connections. And so she reached out to people who were in the alcoholism treatment field, and she had a meeting of the minds at a ranch that that Ray owned in Central Coast of California. And they sat around and they discussed what was needed to make alcoholism something that was publicly understood in a better way. And what better way to do that figured Joan, who'd watched the birth of McDonald's, than mass media. 
So Joan deployed the same media techniques that McDonald's deployed to reach out to kids and families all around the country and ultimately the world to sell hamburgers. She used those same techniques to sell the idea that alcoholism was a terrible disease that impacted the entire family and that there were ways to get help. She commissioned filmmakers. She had uh, authors, people who had suffered from various parts of the alcoholism equation, as she called it. She had these books that she published, these movies that she made. She got them placed on national television. She got them aired in various places around the country. The books were published. She got the people placed on national TV in Dear Abbey to uh, get the word out about this work that she was doing and sponsoring and really made a big dent in, in explaining to people why alcoholism wasn't just something that the poor fellow over on Skid Row was suffering from, that it was something that someone who seemed to be fine in society could be dealing with well, as well, and uh, that it had a terrible, terrible impact. So that was very exciting to find that out about Joan, that she was not just sort of sitting silently by, but that she took this pain and turned it into something useful for other people. And what was Ray's attitude about the work that she was doing? Well, Oddly enough, even though Ray didn't really think that he was uh, afflicted with anything, he had no problems with his drinking as far as he was concerned, he was supportive. They would have these meetings at this ranch in Santa Inez, um, and at one point she got very involved with people at Dartmouth Medical School, was working to fund a program there and a documentary through there as well as her other work. And they would come to the ranch and they'd have these conversations, these meetings, and Ray would sit there smoking a cigar, drinking his cocktail, and, you know, chiming in and supportive. So uh, he didn't certainly didn't try to block her from doing this, and there's no evidence to suggest that he didn't do anything but just say, go ahead. Have, you know, he had established this foundation that he put his brother in charge of, and basically it was a tax dodge. The, the foundation mm -hmm. was set up as wealthy people often do to sort of cordon off some money. Um, yes, to give it away for good things, but mostly because it's a good tax, a wise tax move. And so he'd hired his brother, who was a research scientist, to run this Croc Foundation headquartered at this ranch, um, another nice tax write-off. And basically, Joan was involved with the, the foundation, the Croc Foundation, but she didn't want to just be titular. She didn't want to just be sitting on the board. She wanted to actually do something, and that's where she hatched this Operation Cork. And nobody ever stopped her. Um, I don't think they, they could have stopped her. So it's interesting, Ray's reaction. Very interesting. At what point did she begin to expand her philanthropic efforts? Well... She really expanded them once Ray died. Right. Once Ray died in 1984, he had moved the money that was in the Croc Foundation, which was about $33 million at the time, over to a foundation with her name, Joan B. Croc Foundation. And even before he passed away, in the last days of his life, she started giving out money to various groups in San Diego, where they lived at that, by that point. Um, but then uh, the real pivotal moment was in July of 1984, six months after Ray died, when some people may remember a gunman went into a McDonald's in San Ysidro, California, and shot a number of people. It was the largest mass shooting at the time uh, in our nation's history. It was 
devastating, terrible. It was before we had these kinds of things happen every day every and day. we were inured to them. Um, so Joan, of course, reacted in horror, not just that this had happened, but this had happened at a McDonald's. And without calling McDonald's, without doing anything, she stepped forward and plunked down $100,000 of her own money to start a victim's assistance fund. And she very publicly announced that the first person she would help with that victim's assistance fund was the wife of the gunman and her two children because she saw this woman and how much she must be suffering. I mean, it's unimaginable to conceive, but she sat there and, and as the story was covered, or CNN was early in those days, it was a new phenomenon, but she was glued to the news at all times, Joan was. And that was the beginning of this radical compassionate giving that, that started the pattern that continued through the rest of her life, reactive sometimes to news stories as it was in this case, Sometimes it was bigger than that, more calculated, but always it was from this place of radical compassion. It was also to causes, and we can talk about some of them, it was also to so many causes that, that arguably Ray wouldn't have approved of. Right. Most notably, right after he died, she got very involved with the peace movement. She was deeply disturbed about the nuclear arms race, uh, had become friendly with various people involved with it. Uh, in, in fighting it, and underwrote a, a conference of women in D.C. People had no idea who she was, but she underwrote this conference. She was confidant of Norman Cousins, who some people may remember as the erudite, uh, dashing editor of the Saturday Review, public intellect of his day. Um, they became very close. She funded his work at UCLA in the study of uh, mood on health, uh, which was pioneering and groundbreaking and controversial at the time. And he was very involved in the peace movement, but dating back to Hiroshima. So Joan got very involved herself. And Ray, most likely, safe to say, we aren't in his head. He wasn't around to say it himself. But it's pretty safe to say that Ray would not have been endorsing Joan's campaign against the nuclear arms race, which involved full-page ads in newspapers all across the country, back when that's what you did when you wanted to get the message out about something. You bought a full-page ad in every major paper. Um, she funded rallies. Uh, she funded public service announcements. She funded uh, a song, a peace song, that uh, was sent to every single radio station in the country to convince people at the anniversary of Hiroshima that that war and, and nuclear arms were not the answer. So I think that Ray probably would not have been so thrilled. Talk about her giving to the Salvation Army. It was one of the largest aspects of, of her contributions. Yes, you know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of people assume that that means that she was a Salvationist, which she was not, uh, as people also assume with her gifts to Catholic universities that she was Catholic, and she was not Catholic either. Uh, she fell for the Salvation Army when she was in San Diego and looking for a way to build a recreation center for poor kids. And, you know, she, she knew some folks at the Salvation Army. There was one person in particular there who she trusted. And she gave them the bombshell news that she was going to give them $80 million to build this center in a poor neighborhood, uh, which was not something they'd ever done before. Uh, they do lots of things, lots of great work, the Salvation Army, but building recreation centers was not in their wheelhouse. But all of a sudden, there's Joan Kroc asking them to build it. So they figured it out, and they built it. 
and it was this gleaming, beautiful property, still is in this neighborhood in San Diego. When she died, it turned out that she had built that one thinking that she'd built, build others, that she'd fund others. And she had a very serious illness at the end of her life that took her life quickly. She had a brain tumor. So she had to figure it out quickly. What she did was she gave $2 billion to the Salvation Army. And it was a very specific bequest that it be uh, divided equally among the regions in the country so that each region could have a share of the fortune to build these centers in poor neighborhoods so the kids could go at low or no cost to play and and gather. People in the community could gather. Anybody can, can buy into them, but they're on a sliding scale, and they're beautiful facilities. Twenty-six of them have been built across, across the country. They're spectacular, uh, at least the ones I've seen have. Uh, and, and there's a cascading effect of that because wherever they're built, their impact on the neighborhood is enormous. They, they're showpieces of the neighborhood. And it's funny, if you read real estate ads in, in various communities where these centers have been built, you see, oh, yes, you know, this house is near the Croc Center. So it, it's a mark uh, that she left unintentionally that, uh, on, on neighborhoods all around the country. How much enjoyment did she get out of, in some cases, donating to causes that she knew that Ray would not have been happy about? Man, she, you know, it's really hard to figure that out. A lot of the old McDonald's guard, I tried to find as many of them as I could who would talk to me about her. And many of them were very sneering and, and uh, sexist about her. You know, oh, she, she did that just to annoy Ray. You know, I don't, I don't really think that she did. I, I, again, I don't know. I unfortunately never had the pleasure to meet the woman. I can't be in her head as much as I had to try to inhabit it over the last five years. But I think she just, it would be as if I gave you my car and you just went somewhere in the car that I would never have gone myself. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's what happened with her. She got this fortune. I don't think she was calculating to, to annoy Ray. I think that that was just where her heart was. And she'd lived under his reign, so to speak, for so long and kept her politics to herself for so long that now here she was. She had this fortune and she could do something with it uh, that was just unimagin unimaginable to most of us and even unimaginable in many ways to her. Who did she look up to when she became more active in philanthropy and all the ways we've been talking about? Were there models that she looked at? Were there individuals that she looked at? Who mentored her, if anyone? No one mentored her expressly, but she was very, very close to Norman Cousins, who was this paragon of thoughtful, uh, thumb-sucking articulation. He was the opposite of Ray. I say that you know in the book that Ray was a man of fries and Norman was a man of letters. He was you know very deliberate and and thoughtful, uh, and and well-read and educated. And she loved Norman, and she loved. She went down the roads that Norman went down for sure, but she also uh, fell in love with, not in an inappropriate way, with Father Hesburgh of Notre Dame, uh, who she just absolutely adored and, and was so moved by his quest to get peace education to be part of the curriculum, at least at Notre Dame. Uh, she was also really moved by Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Um, mm. She became friendly with him. 
and just loved his work, his passion for helping children, for, for again, see, teaching thoughtful, deliberate use of, of the media, of, of social mores uh, in a way that, that she felt was really important. She was also very good friends with um, Father Henry Nowen, um, the mystical priest who was also controversial. She, she seemed to really be drawn to people who had committed their lives to helping other people. She loved a woman at the Salvation Army who rose to become the general, the highest order of, of the Salvation Army, a woman named Linda Bond. And she really related to people who were wanted or wanted to be around people. I don't know how she related to them because she was a gambler and a smoker. She was no angel, but she loved the people who had de- devoted their lives toward spirituality, to service. Uh, and, and Jimmy Carter was another of her friends, someone who became a friend. She has a long list of people from whom she must have learned a lot by their example. And it's interesting that so many of those people, from Norman Cousins on down to Jimmy Carter, are people that were in so many ways the antithesis of Ray. <laughs> yes. I mean, she, it's, it's an incredible thing. She's a poor gal from St. Paul. Uh, who wished she could have got, gone to college, but at that moment in time, it just wasn't plausible, feasible for someone like her to go to school. Um, she wasn't a particularly great student in high school. And then all of a sudden, because of this fast food fortune, she has this license and this entree, so to speak, uh, to this world that is phenomenal. Um, and she she basked in it. She made the most of it. Uh, she even this peace sculpture here in in Southern California that launched me on this trail to begin with was built by or was sculpted by an artist named Paul Conrad, who some people may remember was a three-time Pulitzer Prize winning editorial illustrator at, of late at the um, at the L.A. Times and. She just heard him speak and loved him and and loved his message and loved his work, which was dazzling, brilliant, brilliant, artful work, uh, commentary on the news. And she just, she was drawn to folks like that. And yet, yes, she was drawn to Ray, too. So, you know, we all evolve over time, and certainly in relationships we evolve as well. Um, she she evolved in a different different direction than she would have had Ray lived longer, I'm sure. Uh, and that's what makes it all the more interesting. Lisa Napoli, the book is Ray and Joan, the man who made the McDonald's fortune and the woman who gave it all away. Lisa, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. I have to write a new book faster next time so I can talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Lisa. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. Lisa, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Also, please say hi to Ted for me. I sure will. Absolutely. He was so excited that I was talking to you when he saw it. All righty. You take care. See you soon. Bye. Thanks, dear. Bye. 